But anyway, this morning, I've got a rather unusual topic for you. Uh, it's called Death, Facing Life's Final Curtain. And our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to put it up on the screen there for you, but if you want to follow it on in your version, you're very welcome to do so a little later on as I read it. Death is not something that we particularly like to talk about, is it? Especially if you're not a Christian. There's an old saying that goes something like this. There are only two things in life that are certain. Death and taxes. Death and taxes. Most people spend a fortune trying to avoid both of them. Well, a lot of people do. For example, there was a guy called Howard Hughes. He was an American multimillionaire. Uh, who lived last century, and uh, he created the Hughes Corporation, and he built a great big aircraft that was called the Spruce Goose, and he did all sorts of things. Um, and he made a huge amount of money in Hollywood and other places, but he tried to extend his life, and he ended up living as a recluse on the top floor of a hotel, Visitors weren't allowed to see him because he was afraid that they'd bring in bacteria or some sort of virus that might finish him off. He was looking for a way to extend his life and he didn't find it. There are many people like a former US president who would employ accountants to make sure they didn't pay very much tax and then they'd also employ people like lawyers who would try and stop people knowing how they did it. Well, over the years, I've done a number of funeral services and I know from experience there's a great difference between a Christian funeral service and for a non-Christian. This is because the Christian knows that death is not... Since the beginning of time, the question that has plagued humanity is what happens when we die? Well, the Bible tells us what happens when we die. And as Christians, we are aware that we have a sure and certain hope to spend eternity with Christ. But what's this hope based on? What is it that makes the difference? Death usually has a negative meaning in the world, and sometimes we think of the grim reaper, represented by all sorts of horrible pictures, but death has come to be something that we've grown to fear and to avoid having to deal with. And that's why when it invades our family or our church, it is hard for us to face it. There are many views of death, and uh, here are three prominent ones. The first is the atheist's point of view. The atheist responds to the issue of death by saying that the grave is the end of us all. We're just like any other animal that's born and lives and then dies. There's absolutely nothing afterwards. As Porky Pig would say, that's all, folks. There's nothing more. Then we have the reincarnationist point of view. Many of the Eastern religions teach this view, and uh, it says that when you die, you will be reincarnated. That is, you'll come back to life as someone else or as something else. It's based on eventually reaching a place called Nirvana, and it can take you as many times as you liked to get there. And then we have... A third view, which is the Christian view. And the Christian view teaches that all people will die and be raised from the dead. That all will be changed from our present corruptible state to an incorruptible state. 
where you will be able to live for eternity either in heaven or in hell. Well, today I want to examine something about what the Bible says about death. And we're going to consider Paul's teaching on the subject as he spoke or wrote to the uh, Corinthian church and he covered this subject of death. And we'll see how this applies to our lives today. So just for a little bit of biblical background about the church at Corinth, you've probably heard a lot of this before, but just as a reminder, when Paul established the church at Corinth, he had to deal with a variety of issues that the local Corinthian culture brought into the church. And death and resurrection was one of those issues. You see, Corinth was the centre of what was called the Epicurean philosophy. Now that's a big word, it sounds rather awkward, but Epicureanism... Epicureanism is summed up in the motto, and you've probably heard this before, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. It's also known as hedonism, the philosophy of good living. And this philosophy taught that there is no eternity, and so people should eat and drink and be as merry as they can be while they're alive, for when we die, that's it. It's much the same philosophy that people follow today, isn't it? They say there is no God. There's no God to be accountable for or to. There's no life after death, so let's live in the moment and uh, that's how we're going to live. For this moment is all that we have. This philosophy was creeping through into the Corinthian church and there were people there that were teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. They would say, yeah, you can believe in Jesus Christ, that's fine. We believe that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, that's great. But don't believe that he really rose from the grave or that Christians will be resurrected or raised at the last day. Well, if you follow this this teaching through to its logical conclusion, this means that there's no heaven or hell. What would be the point? If there's no life after death, there's no need of heaven or hell. Actually, what this teaching is saying is that Jesus is a liar because he taught about heaven and hell. This teaching was destructive and like a cancer, Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, well he doesn't say this, but today we'd say it's like a cancer that has to be excised, to be cut out and discarded. Today I don't have time to read the whole chapter, so we're just going to look at the last part of it. And it begins at verse uh, 35 and it says this about the resurrection body. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish yet another. There are also heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another kind. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as, it is, the as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Listen, I tell you a story. We shall not all sleep or die, but we, shall all, we will all be changed in the flash, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then, and that's a really important little word, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. You know, when we are in life and death situations, we think very differently to how we would normally think. Sometimes we become very, very afraid. Today I want to share with you some quick facts about death from a biblical perspective. But I first want to start with a story, a true story. The year was 1991, and it was the height of Operation Desert Storm. And for those younger ones here who don't remember, Saddam Hussein used to rule the country of Iraq, and he invaded the country next door called Kuwait. And uh, when he did that, the United Nations sent in the America and a lot of the Western nations, including New Zealand, to go and help to move Saddam out of Kuwait. Well... There was a woman whose name was Ruth and she received the dreaded news from the Pentagon that her son, Clayton Carpenter, private first class, had stepped on a mine in Kuwait and he was dead. Now Ruth's words sound like ours when we have lost someone who is so close to us. She said, I cannot begin to describe my grief and my shock. It was almost more than I could bear. For three days I did nothing but cry. For three days I expressed my anger. For three days people tried to comfort me, but nothing helped because the loss was so great. Well, after these three days of mourning, the telephone rang. 
And she picked up the phone and the voice on the other end said, Mum, it's me, Clayton. I'm alive. Well, Ruth said she couldn't believe it at first, but she recognised his voice and realised that he really was alive. A horrible mistake had been made, you see, and on the part of the military, but she didn't care about that. All that she thought was the son that she had thought was dead was actually alive, and she laughed, and she cried, and she actually felt like turning cartwheels. This woman named Ruth made this remark. She said, I don't think anyone could possibly begin to understand how I felt during this time. Well, that may be correct, but I suspect there was a bunch of Jesus followers who might have been able to identify with her thoughts and experience. You see, remember these disciples had spent three years following Jesus. They'd seen him walk on the water. They'd watched him as he healed the sick. They'd seen him raise the dead, give life to those who had died, give sight to those who were blind. He had healed lepers from their leprosy and performed many other miracles. But not only had they been watching him do all these wonderful things, they'd listened as he taught the crowd in parables and as he taught them in private. They were with him when he rode into Jerusalem on the colt with the crowds crying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, as we were singing just before. The crowds were placing palm fronds on the path along which he rode. And then suddenly, not long after, one evening as they watched, the soldiers came and took him away to be tried and executed. Most of them had deserted Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Each was afraid that the crowd would come for them next and do the same thing to them. It was John who witnessed the pain of Jesus firsthand. He had heard him as he cried out, I thirst. He heard him cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? John listened and watched as he finally bowed his head and said the words, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He reported this back to the others who maybe were uh, watching from afar as they took his body from the cross and they buried him in an empty tomb. They rolled a stone across the front of the grave and they placed a guard upon it. The disciples were finished. Their hopes and dreams were now buried with Jesus in that tomb. Every hope that they had had gone and they were very, very afraid. And so they hid. The disciples gathered together in someone's home and they locked the door for fear that the authorities might come and look for them and take them to do the same thing to them as they did to Jesus. In the face of impending death, it is natural for us to become very, very afraid. Well, let me give you some quick facts about what the Bible tells us regarding death. The first one is that death does not show favoritism. Every one of us will face death. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. The Bible is very clear in the statement that it is appointed unto each of us that every one of us will die. All of us have an appointment with death. It's just not on our calendar yet. 
we haven't written it on our to-do list, have we? Because we don't look forward to it. None of us want to face that day. But notice what Hebrews says. After we die, we will be facing judgment for what we have done in this life here on earth. But which judgment seat we face will depend on whether we choose to follow Christ or to reject him. The second thing about death is that none of us know what day that will be. Statistics show us that life expectancy in New Zealand in 2018, these were the latest statistics I could find, was for a, a guy who can live an average of 80.5 years. Isn't that wonderful? 80. That's more than three score and ten that the Bible talks about. But if you're a woman, it's not fair. You guys, ladies can live for 84 years, and that's just the average in New Zealand. There's a lot of people that live a lot younger than that and a lot that live older. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 25 and 26. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? None of us know the day that or hour we will die, but God does. He knows the hour and the day because he knows he can, because he knows he alone can prepare us for that day. Most people at some point in life are very afraid of death. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 says this, since humans have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in our humanity. We haven't quite got caught up to us yet, but Hebrews 2 verse 14, since humans have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the, that is Satan or the devil. And he has the power to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So what sort of things are people afraid of apart from death? Well, I've looked up and there's a number of them. I've got a number of lists here that I could read through. Um, the top of them, for many people, is public speaking, like doing what I'm doing here today. Uh, there, there is a, oh yeah, there's, there's right, money problems, death, loneliness, heights, all sorts of things there. There's another one that says, the dentist. Oh, I don't know when I last went to the dentist, but um, yeah, it's one of those scary things, you know, somebody opening your mouth and putting a drill in there, but... Some people are afraid of flying or thunder and lightning. Another lot, another list is public speaking, heights, insects, bugs and spiders. My mother hated spiders. We lived on a farm up at Oingaiti and if she was doing the gardening and came across a spider, the neighbours would come running because they'd hear a scream. I mean, it was, and the neighbours were not just next door like we have here. She used to scream. Jay Leno and Jerry Seinfeld put it this way about public speaking. They would rather be in the casket than be the one delivering the funeral sermon. So there's your public speaking one. One of the reasons that we become afraid is our lack of knowledge about the subject. While snakes are not on the list, they could be under number three. Uh, there's creepy crawly things, but I do not know many people who aren't afraid of snakes. And if you ask them these questions, they'll usually give the same answer if they're here in New Zealand. 
Have you ever held one? <laughs> no, of course not. Didn't you hear me? I'm afraid of snakes. Even though we don't have snakes here in New Zealand, for some reason, they terrify me. I couldn't watch those movies like Samuel L. Jackson's uh, Snakes on a Plane. I don't know whether you ever watched that one, but I couldn't. And I never, ever watched Anaconda. There was no way that I could watch that, even though Jennifer Lopez was in it. <laughs> even in that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, when he was dropped down into that pit and there were snakes all around him, I was just really freaked out. For some reason, they look cold, slimy and wet, but they are not cold, wet or slimy. In fact, they're just the opposite. Their skin can be beautiful with amazing colours and patterns, so different in the flesh to what I thought they would be. There's something creamy, creepy and dangerous about them and I can't explain what it is. So to try and overcome it, when I was in the States, I touched a python. Well, I thought I was pretty brave doing that, but they couldn't get me to hold it. <laughs> there was no way. And it was just, I was very ginger and came up behind the guy who had it and made sure my hand was behind his face. Oh, yeah, just still thinking about it gives me the creeps. But many people are afraid of public speaking. And so if I asked them, have you ever done it? Most of them would say, no, you wouldn't get me up there on the stage. So if we look at the facts, we realize that we're paralyzed often with fear over something that we've never experienced or tried. And so often it is the fear of the unknown that freaks us out. Sadly, my um, daughter-in-law is afraid of those things. Anyone else afraid of those things? You know what they are, eh? Yeah. Mm. Well, she gets really freaked out by them. Uh, we have a row of camellias down by our house and sometimes they, those things come out of there and come into the house and if she sees one in our house, boy, we all know about it. Well, the thing is that her son has cottoned on to her fear and he's terrified of them too. Cockroaches can't really hurt you. They're small and they normally run away from you as quick as they can. If you turn the light on and it's dark, they just scatter. Well, it doesn't matter what we tell Thomas, he's still afraid of them. And in a similar way, we have an inbuilt fear of death. Death eventually comes to us all in one way or another. But listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, he says, Where, is, where O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Well, every one of us has probably been through a significant loss of a loved one. If you're like me, your answer to Paul's question would sound something like this. The sting is here, Paul. It hurts. It's powerful beyond words. Paul, I'm having trouble moving forward. You see, the death of a loved one can and does bring a deep sense of loss and hurt. Our tears are real. There's an emptiness that goes beyond sadness, and it stings. The separation of a loved one really hurts, and it can take a long time for us to adjust to the loss. We need time to heal. So why does Paul say these words that we hear quoted so often at, funerals, at Christian funerals? Well, the answer, I suspect, is that Paul knew something that most of us do not. Why was Paul able to look death right in the face and say it doesn't hurt? Why was Paul able to speak without fear of, in the face of death? Because he knew things that God had revealed to him. We had... He had seen things that we have no comprehension of. 
Verse 36 says, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So he knew that we have to die in order for us to be raised to eternal life. We cannot enter the kingdom until our body is done with, until it's gone. Verse 51 says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. There will be some of us who may be alive when the Lord comes, and we will not face death, but our bodies will be done away with, and we will be changed into that which is immortal. Paul is speaking of the rapture here, that time when Jesus will step out of the clouds and call us home to be with him forever. Are you ready for that time? None of us know when it will happen. None of us know if we can walk out of this place today and be here again next Sunday. We can't guarantee that for any one of us. But when it happens, Paul tells us it's going to happen very quickly. In the twinkling of an eye, at that moment we will all be changed. Our bodies will be changed into new bodies that will never die. It is when this transformation takes place that we will be able to see, say those words, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? But not until then. Paul wasn't saying these words for the here and now. He knew that he would say them at the moment of his death. For he said in verse 54, it is then that the saying that is written will come true. So it's natural when we die or when a friend dies or a family member dies that we feel that sting of death. But there is a great hope for the Christian, isn't there? That we have that hope that our bodies will be changed and we will become like him. Paul talks about this vision in chapter uh, 12. In verse 1, he says, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he was speaking about himself here, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things things that no one is permitted to tell. Paul tells us that he was caught up into the third heaven. He tells us that there he saw amazing things that were beyond comprehension, so amazing that he couldn't describe what he saw in words. Notice here that this vision about heaven had taken place 14 years before he wrote about it. Paul hadn't spoken about it for 14 years. There are things in the Bible that were revealed to the authors that they were not allowed to talk about it. And for example, if you go back and look at the story of Daniel, when he saw the great vision of the coming ages, there were things that he was told not to write down because they were not allowed to. John, in the book of Revelation, was told about things that were to come that he could not uh, write down or record. They were to be hidden and kept secret until the end of the age. Paul says that he could brag about what he had seen, but he wasn't going to do that. So incredible, 
so far beyond words that Paul did not even attempt to talk about it. Even if he was allowed to talk about it, he, couldn't, he wouldn't be able to because he couldn't speak the words that were needed to describe it. He talks in another verse about how um, it hasn't even entered into the imagination of man what God has in store, what God has planned for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Heaven is an unimaginably beautiful, wonderful place and the life that we will have there goes beyond anything that you and I can even begin to think about. So how similar, to, his experience was similar to how we would describe things when we say there's no way to adequately describe it. You just had to be there. Well, Paul was in this position. So why did Paul have this position? Because he met Jesus on the way to Damascus. Paul, had, or Saul as he was in those days, had just witnessed the stoning of, Je of Stephen. And uh, his name hadn't been changed from Saul to Paul at that point, but on the road down to Damascus, in the blink of an eye, he did change. The Lord spoke and Saul listened, and God changed him forever. He was changed because he experienced the greatest meeting that anyone can experience when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. D.L. Moody once said, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of, North, of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it, he said. At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that's all. In researching for this message I found an interesting tradition that, uh, from Jesus' day about servants and serviettes, or as you, in American you call them napkins. But um, we call napkins something else, don't we? But anyway, um, in order to understand the significance of the folded napkin, uh, you have to know a little bit about Hebrew tradition. And I haven't got a napkin with me, but I've got a hanky. Oh, I won't pull that out. It's a bit there. been used. Anyway, um, the folded napkin had to do with the master and the servant. And every Jewish boy knew this tradition. When the servant set the table for the master, he would set it out, and he put, well, they didn't have knives and forks in those days, but the utensils and their plates and all the rest of it and the food and everything there, and the serviette was placed next to it, as my grandmother used to do. But um, the servant would then wait out of sight while the master came in and ate the food. The servant dared not touch the table until the master was finished. Now, if the master had finished eating, he would rise from the table and he'd wipe his fingers, his mouth, clear his beard, and um, wad up that napkin and toss it onto the table. The servant would then know to clear the table. Because in those days, that napkin wadded up meant one thing. I'm done, I'm finished. But if the master got up from the table and folded his napkin and laid it beside his plate, the servant dares not touch the table because the servant knew that the folded napkin meant I am not finished yet. The folded napkin meant I'm coming back. Well, Peter and John had watched and walked with Jesus for three years. They had watched as he opened the blind eyes of people. They had seen him raise people from the dead. 
They'd watched him die. They'd watched all their, as all their hopes and dreams were in the depths of despair. They were shattered. The light had gone out of their lives. Peter even said, look, I'm going fishing. In other words, he was going back to do what he used to do. But then after three days, they saw the tomb of Jesus was empty. But not only did they see an empty tomb, but they also saw a folded napkin. And the message was clear. Jesus was saying, I'm not finished. I'm coming back. And so the question for every one of us here this morning is, do you know Jesus? To overcome the fear of death, you need to put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. If you have done that, then these verses will provide great comfort to you. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If you truly know the Lord Jesus, death, that final doorway from this life to eternity will hold no fear for you. Therefore stand firm in the faith without doubting. Don't let Satan try and sow in your mind thoughts of despair and hopelessness. Give yourself wholeheartedly to the work of the Lord. What you do for him down here on earth is not going to be a wasted effort. You cannot take your money your home, your possessions to heaven, but you can take other people to heaven with you by being a soul winner. So don't be discouraged or afraid. Let us serve diligently with purpose and with determination to be a witness here and now to our families, to our friends, to our acquaintances, to our workmates, our classmates, those who come across our path each day. When my mother were sorry, when I, when I was a boy, my grandmother had a favourite poem. It was written by a guy called C.T. Studd. He was a former English cricket captain who gave his fame and wealth away to become a, a missionary to serve the Lord in China. And uh, with Hudson Taylor, he was one of the famous seven that went with him. Uh, he also served in India in um, a place called Utukaman, which my wife's auntie was a missionary there for many years. And he also went to the Congo, the Belgian Congo. Well, one of the most famous uh, poems that he wrote was this, and it had eight verses in it. I'm not going to read all eight to you this morning, but it had a refrain at the end of each verse, and it says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. In 1979, a guy called Lanny Wolf wrote a, a song based on these verses that uh, were written by C.T. Scud, Studd. Only one life. It matters so little how much you may own, the places you've been or the people that you've known. 
for it all comes to nothing when placed at his feet. It is nothing to Jesus, it's only memories to keep. You may take all the treasures from faraway lands, take all the riches you can hold in your hands and take all the pleasures that your riches can buy, but what will you have when it's your time to die? The days pass so swiftly, the months come and go, the years melt away like falling snow. Spring turns to summer and summer to fall. Autumn brings winter, then death comes to us all. Only one life, so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one chance to do his will. So give to Jesus all your days. It's the only one life that pays. When you recall, you have that one life. May God add his blessing to these thoughts as you think about what God has done through his son, the Lord Jesus, for you. The choice is yours. Thank you.